is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, more calls for the government and ministers to intervene in the ports dispute to guarantee Australian farm exports and more warnings that heavy rain from the ex-tropical cyclone that's uh, heading into Queensland could lash northern parts of New South Wales. Uh, heaps of it. Because mm. it's going to be an ex-tropical system, uh, it's a bit like when Cyclone Yasi came through uh, Queensland and New South Wales back in 2011 that just dumped hundreds of millimetres not just in Queensland but in those northern river parts of New South Wales All that and a whole lot more coming up. You can always uh, send us a text your comments as well, maybe about the port dispute, maybe about uh, Fire Ant as well. A lot of texts on that issue yesterday. We'll hear more about the latest on the control measures on fire ants as well. 0467 922 684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first, uh, let's turn our attention to the ports. The protracted industrial dispute between Stevedore and Company DP World and its employees is costing $84 million a week and has led to a backlog of more than 54,000 shipping containers. That's according to the company. Spokespeople for the company appeared at the Senate Education and Employment Legislation Committee this week and took questions from Senators Michaelia Cash and Jackie Lambie. Here's the company's head of corporate affairs, Blake Tierney, answering some questions from Senator Cash. The figure per week is $84 million. $84 million. Uh, in terms of the dispute in relation to the economic analysis, which, as you said, indicates the action is costing the economy $84 million a week, um, how can you be confident of your assessments being accurate? And have you been shown the department's economic analysis that has formed their advice to government? Senator Cash, we have not seen the economic data that the department has pulled together. I think we need to be careful of questioning economic data when the economist who we have as the third party is a leading expert as an economist within the country. I think the, to dispute numbers from an economic level can be quite dangerous. So in other words, you are confident that the protected industrial action is currently costing the nation $84 million a week. Very confident. Thank you very much. Um, just in terms of the number of containers currently backlogged at your terminals, um, can you quantify that? We currently have 54,330 containers in backlog. 54,330 in backlog. What does that actually mean? For, for the person in the street, what does that translate to, and in particular in terms of impact on the economy and potential impact on them by way of rising prices? So it depends on container to container. From an import's point of view, will he have motor, motor vehicles, clothes, appliances, furniture and bedding, and also polymers? From an export's point of view, we have meat, dairy, eggs, wool, grains and aluminium that are currently stuck at each of our terminals across the country. Just in terms of, you've made some public comments on how multi-employer bargaining could cripple the supply chain. Are you concerned that with multi-employer bargaining that strikes and other similar actions could then go across all ports? I might refer that question to our VP of People, Mark Ratcliffe, if I Thank can. Thank you, Mr Ratcliffe. 
Yeah, thank you, Senator Cash. Uh, yes, we, we are concerned that it could cripple all ports. Uh, all the other major uh, port and terminal operators have their enterprise agreements expiring in the next, or sorry, between March of this year and December of next year. Simply, if we were end up in a situation of multi-employer bargaining, uh, once those enterprise agreements expire, that essentially the protected industrial action that we're seeing now could go across the entire ports and terminal operators of the country. That's just uh, some of the evidence that was given to the uh, Senate yesterday. DP World's Vice President of People, Mark Ratcliffe, and earlier we heard from the company's Head of Corporate Affairs, Blake Tierney, answering questions from Senator Michaelia Cash. Senator Jackie Lambie also sits on the Senate Education and Employment Legislation Committee and asked Blake Tierney whether industrial reform was needed to lessen the Maritime Union's control over the ports. I think there does need to be reform in terms of industrial relations on the waterfront. What does that look like? Do you, do you, do you, have you guys thought about that? What does that reform look like? I think we, both the union and also government, need to have a sit down to look at how much impact into protected industrial action does have on the supply chain. I don't have the solution. I think we need to work together to work out what that solution is for the betterment of the country. We can see that industrial action causes a massive impact to the supply chain but we need to work together, both unions, the stevedores and also government, to work out a mechanism that is going to suit the interests of both parties. They have a legal right to have industrial action, but we need to work together to make sure that the next stevedore that goes into industrial action doesn't have the same economic impact on the community. Can you tell me exactly what the union is asking for? Uh, the, the current offer, and it's long and complex, but some of the headline... Statistics. So they're currently after uh, pay increases of 8%, an increase in superannuation of 3%, the extra accrual of additional personal leave and the ability to cash that out or have it paid out, uh, as well as uh, another uh, 40 other claims that are still outstanding, Senator. So is it, is it true what I'm hearing that over the next three years, that at one level of it, they're asking for a 27.5% increase over three years? Yes, that's correct. Jesus. And are they asking for drug and alcohol testing to be exempt from those ports? That has been a claim at a point, Senator, yes. So for the ability to come to work and for breath alcohol test at 0.02 rather than zero. Can you tell me how much does an average wharf, wharf worker earn on an annual basis at DP World? Uh, between one hundred and thirty and one hundred and forty thousand. DP World's Mark Ratliff and earlier the company's Blake Tierney answering questions from Senator Jackie Lambie. The Maritime Union has been contacted for comment as well. The Australian Meat Industry Council is calling on the uh, government uh, to intervene to address the significant impacts being caused by the escalating dispute between DP World and the Maritime Union. The ongoing industrial action has seen significant disruptions across Australia's sea freight terminals. AMEX CEO Patrick Hutchinson says that Australia exported 15 billion dollars of beef lamb and goat meat to 100 markets last year adding that if dp world and the mua cannot come to a resolution then they're urging the federal government to step in because it needs to be resolved to present prevent further damage to not only the red meat industry but the entire australian economy i started out by asking patrick hutchinson what damage had been done to agricultural exports so far well, it's, it's a bit hard to, um, to ascertain at the moment, Michael, simply because we're trying to move, uh, and you can remember those ports as both import and export. So we are trying to find ways and means to be moving things. We've certainly heard from our own members that there's an increasing amount of meat 
that he's being stuck on these wharves. And unfortunately, because we're one of the world leaders in the provision of chilled product, that it runs out of um, the opportunity for shelf life and it has to come back on the domestic market. So it's just not a great look for us internationally if we're out there trying to find these sorts of um, uh, markets for farmers, as we as we always do, and then inevitably we can't actually then fulfil them because we're stuck on the wharf. So I guess the grain that's sitting there won't spoil, but the meat will, and you, you might lose money putting it back on the domestic market, but you won't have to throw it out. No, that's right. And obviously, from a consumer's perspective, is is okay. It depends on the type of product that we're talking about, obviously. We're not putting in whole carcasses there, but if we've got chilled product, it's normally cryovac primals or uh, or even further value add, and that's going to specific markets and specific customers. And if we're not able to meet those requirements on that chilled product, which is probably around, you know, depending on our market, but it's around one third of everything that we export around the world. If, if we're not able to um, effectively maintain that, then it's going to be taken up by somebody else. Are we talking sort of million-dollar losses? Um, inevitably, it will be, I think, uh, once the dust has settled. I think it's the scenario is that our industry is uber-efficient at scrambling when these sorts of issues occur in order to ensure that they don't lose on product. Obviously, product is also insured, but if these are also issues where if you start to have uh, loss of product, insurance policies and insurance claims go up so that's why you know we've called for a number of things from the government uh in around their intervention we've seen we've seen um minister burke um come out uh yesterday around this issue saying that they won't intervene i have to say i'm somewhat incredulous that it's become a personal attack on the individual dp world which again just shows that this has become a uh, a, a union versus company-based issue and farming in the farming industry, the agricultural and food industry has been forgotten. Uh, that's exceptionally unfortunate. But he's saying, Tony Burke is saying that, uh, you know, the container increases uh, of 52%, you know, they've been put up by DP World, even Graham Samuels criticised their increases there. And he's saying, you know, who could blame the workers for asking for a, um, an increase in pay? That's that is a uh, that's conflating uh, about four or five different issues into one in order to ensure that you back your union buddies. So I don't think that that's necessarily a, a fair and discussive argument. Um, what we've been saying is is that we need to see consistency about removing containers from terminals. We don't want month-long delays at ports. We know that this is a union-based issue. We know that uh, B- uh, Minister Burke is just defending unions' right to do whatever they like in this scenario. Uh, and unfortunately, it's in showing a conflict of policy around uh, within the, uh, the current federal Labor government where they're all about uh, us uh, making investments and in increasing exports for farmers but not actually having the structures in place or supporting the infrastructure to do so. So... That's why we've been talking about this. We're, we're getting excess inventory now because we can't load out product. We're getting increases um, in dis- disruptions and, and logistics costs, which are increasing on us, like demurrage. And we're also having customers who are starting to ask questions about the reliability of arguably the world's most reliable red meat supplier being Australia. Once we lose that, once we lose that, it's going to be very hard for us to get back. What sets us apart is not just clean and green. It's our reliability and, our, and, um, uh, and the way in which uh, we continue to provide that consistency of product. We start failing in that area, 
we start then having to compete at the lowest common denominator. In the past with the port dispute previously in the 90s, it was about productivity. And uh, I note that uh, the ACTU, Sally McManus, saying that the productivity has increased by 10% on the wharfs. And, um, you know, why shouldn't they ask for a pay rise? And Patrick's have also given their workers a pay rise. So this is bringing, you know, DP World, Dubai, Dubai Ports uh, uh, workers in line with th- with Patrick's. Yeah, but again, I think that the scenario is, is in regards to that sort of stuff, there is two sides to, obviously, all of the stories that go around in any sort of enterprise bargaining agreement. Unfortunately, at this time, what the government, uh, fuelled by the ACTU and also fuelled by the unions have done, is pick a side. They haven't picked the side of Australia, they've picked the side of the unions. And then, unfortunately, what that's going to do but is... But isn't, isn't it supposed to be the Commission that makes these decisions? I mean, that's why we've well, got an industrial relations system. And they do ask them to both of them to go back to, the, um, uh, uh, to, to, to arbitration. But obviously, that is not working and mediation is not working at the moment. So what we're saying... Well, they've offered a 0% pay rise. Uh, for me, I, I um, am unfortunately sitting around that table. So I don't understand why they would be offering 0% pay rises but based on the fact that they, uh, the demands, as, as we understood, was an 8% year-on-year mm. increase. Yeah. Um, for, so basically, 8% upon 8% upon 8%. So I'm pretty sure we all would like to have something like that ourselves. All that is being asked of by you know, the food and agribusiness industry is that somehow that we get an opportunity or there can be government can come in to at least assist in providing that, that mediation rather than decide that it's just going to pick a side and, and, and go with that and say nothing to see here or it's a greedy corporate. All that's doing is just pandering to one side. And that's what we're sort of talking about here, Michael, is that we are calling out the fact that these have long flow-on effects. If we start piling up inventory here, the, the domestic market, then the domestic market is going to be full. Once it starts to get full like that, then price to, then then gets depressed. And it also then impacts on export price for livestock because, frankly, you know, we don't have the opportunity to be able to get there if we're not seen as being reliable. But I, what, I, what I can't really understand, though, is we don't we have an umpire in this anyway. Like, we've got the commission. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. And, and, so and why have the government step saying. in and be another umpire? In the scenario, I think it's more about trying to find a logical way. Is if the umpire just says, go back or just sit down, and that's not working, then surely we've got to look at what are the other logical ways that we can do it. But, um, oh, but the right. umpire could argue, the umpire could come back after they uh, can't reach an agreement and say, okay, 4%. And that may well be the case. We're not party to any of these, but we're the collateral damage when it does occur. What we're looking for is a government that may be looking to work with the umpire, may be looking to say, what else do you need? May be looking to say, how, you know, how can we do this? Or potentially then just turn around and say, well, there isn't anything that we can do, as opposed to saying, well, you know, what should happen is that this is a, you know, in uh, an international corporate uh, who's not playing by the rules, the poor $185,000 a year. Um, well, actually, uh, in the Senate yesterday, DP World said most people get 130000 130000 So what... Uh, and that's probably the average uh, on average wage. What I'm saying here is, is that the collateral damage that is being con- caused... By this not happening, we need to see a solution. We've got to find a solution. People are now just picking sides to continue a fight. That's not going to solve anything for anybody. Patrick Hutchinson is the uh, CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council. It's 20 past 12. ABC Listen. 
podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, still on that issue, and the head of Australia's largest meat cooperative says DP World and the Maritime Union in Australia urgently need to come to an agreement. Simon Stahl is the CEO of the Casino Food Co-op. He says if it continues, the industrial dispute could be painful for the whole supply chain. Kim Honan spoke to the exporter about the impact it's having on the red meat sector. Well, I can only speak from our experience, um, Kim, but we're certainly... um seeing a couple of minor interruptions at the present, so it uh, hasn't um, got to a, uh, a bigger stage. But, of course, we, um, we really hope it doesn't because it's uh, something that we can ill afford any time, uh, let alone now. So are you having any issues getting product onto containers? Um, no. Um, when I say no, there has been some problems with, obviously, uh, shipping schedules from around the world, not directly related to the DP problems, uh, but there are some, uh, you know, with overtime bans, etc. there's some um, curfews and stuff that we haven't uh, experienced before, but we're working our way around that. So does that result in an added cost to the business? How is it sort of affecting your bottom line? Uh, look, at the moment it's uh, manageable, um, but we'd hate to see it worsen for sure. So would the industry like to see the government intervene in this dispute? Oh, look, I've seen calls for it. I mean, if, um, if the two parties can't come to a solution, um, then certainly someone has to broker a deal or someone has to get the parties um, to see sense out of it. Um, you can't hold really... A, we, we survive not only um, in agriculture, not only our uh, supply chain, but in agriculture and, and many others. We're, a, we're an export nation, so we need the ports to be open, so I don't see any other solution if uh, the two parties can't come to a, an agreement. And if the dispute continues, what sort of impact do you see it then having on your exports? Oh, well, it depends on, you know, it depends what what uh, the dispute manifests into and, and how much access to the to the boats um, we, we get or don't have. Uh, and I think it's more than just how exports. We've got to think about all the livestock around the country. We've had, uh, you know, plenty of rain where we've got couple of good seasons together we're going to have plenty of cattle um over the coming months um so we really you know this is a, the whole supply chain and i think that's lost on some people or i hope it's not lost on some people um so it's really urgent that they actually come to an agreement and could you see a point where that you know that you may have um say chilled meat uh stuck on containers at ports like how far off is that do you think oh i'd like to think it's it's a fair way off i mean they there was a lot of press early about how um, how it was going to ramp up and, and we've seen it must mean the parties are talking well I'd like to think I haven't had an update but um, you know I don't want to preempt any of that Kim but um, we really hope it doesn't get to that because it'll be uh, very painful for as I say the whole supply chain. And what about the ongoing crisis in the Red Sea is that having any impact on your beef exports? Uh, not so much the beef at the moment um, however uh, well there have been containers now diverted around uh, down around Africa uh, and some of our hide sales have had to be diverted uh, down around Africa and that's adding cost to each of the vessels. Can you say how much cost? Oh yeah it's in the thousands of dollars um, the trip is not cheap at all so um, you know we're going to have to work that out with our customers and um, it just seems at the moment Kim there's one thing after another there's not much we can do about the Red Sea development but hopefully um, people in country can do something about the wars and make sure we don't have any more problems.
Simon Stahl is the CEO of the Casino Food Co-op, 25 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Tax tweaks, the federal government's under pressure to give lower income earners a break and revisit cuts for higher earners. We'll look at what they're considering. More bad news about spiralling rent costs with the national median rent value now over $600 a week and economists warning there's no relief in sight. And what do you do if an internet map says your business is closed when it's not? Apparently, it's not an easy fix. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, invasive fire ants, they're continuing their march south, prompting a plea for vigilance after that nest was detected at Wardell south of Byron Bay, uh, 85 kilometres, in fact, south of the previous outbreak. A gardener raised the alarm on Friday after disturbing the nest and being bitten. Authorities are due to... uh, continue to examine the site and also they're continuing to destroy any ants they find with insecticide. Graham Dudgeon is the Head of Operations at the National Fire Ant Control Eradication Program. He says that the traceback is underway and surveillance is continuing, but he says they still can't pinpoint how the fire ant got to Wardell. We don't know the answer to that. We know that it was found in a raised garden bed. Uh, which means it could have been brought here in some material that was put in the garden bed, it could have been put into the soil or into mulch or in a pot of plant. We don't know if that's the case. Uh, We've got some samples of ants that are being genetically tested at the moment. They will give us some indication about whether they came from south-east Queensland first. We need to establish that. And then if they came from south-east Queensland, where might they have come from? We're a long way from the tracing results that would indicate where the source in Queensland could be, if in fact that's where they came from. What's the aim today as well? The aim today is, as we normally do, it's a standard protocol. So we're doing surveillance out from the point that they were found. So we start off with, so that's searching for more ants. We'll do that out to 500 metres today. We're also treating with fire ant bait out to 500 metres. And we have some detector dogs here to look at the piles of soil that were used to put material into the, the planter box and also the high-risk areas for the community. We need to make sure the community is not at risk from any fire ants that could be here. We still have to establish they didn't fly here. Now, we're fairly sure they didn't. It's a long distance, but that's why we do this surveillance out from the point of detection. And if we don't find any more, that's fine. They didn't fly here. If we do find more, this might just be a hop of a flight sequence that might have come from Queensland. So we've got to be careful we don't rule out things that are still possibilities. Um, If it's been brought here, or if they were brought here in what we call a fire ant carrier, so they hitched a ride in something, then that just all goes back to the message we're giving people. So those who are sending stuff from Queensland, they have to comply with what we call movement control. So they have to treat the product in some way to make sure it doesn't have fire ants in it. People who receive materials in New South Wales that have come from a fire ant area need to make sure that those things have been done to the product. So don't accept it if you're not sure. Don't import fire ants to New South Wales. What are the compliance checks like for material um, coming across from the border? We can't intercept every single shipment of every bit of soil, gravel, hay, mulch that comes over the border. So a lot of those checks get done back in Queensland where the material comes from. 
So first of all, they have to have a permit of some time, of some kind, a certificate to be able to bring it over the border. That means that has the business has to have been inspected, and those controls that I talked about have to be put in place. So that doesn't stop people who don't have a certificate and who are not legal in bringing things over the border. So there have been some border controls put in place from time to time by New South Wales, um, and that's what we do. South Wales farmers, they're saying that not enough has been done on the Queensland side. Um, what do you have to say to that, I guess? The Queensland side is a really big effort to do that. My answer to that is there's always more we could do, and that's really about being able to get the resources to do that. and putting those resources towards what are, what are the highest risks. So we can't totally eliminate risk of foreign being moved. What we do is we put the resources towards what are the highest risk sources or potential to move finance and that's what we're dealing with. And as I said, we're ramping that up. Are you confident that fire ants can still be eradicated in New South Wales? All of the experts tell us that fire ants cannot just be eradicated from New South Wales, but they can be eradicated from the whole country. So these New South Wales outbreaks, I'll call them, they're relatively small compared to the large infestation we have in southeast Queensland. Yes, we have to extend our resources to deal with these, but it's still within the scope of what we can do. Graham Dudgeon is a head of operations at the National Fire Ant Control Eradication Program. Robert McDonald operates a turf farm in the area. He says it could be devastating if it gets out of hand in terms of fire ant. He's urging everyone to take fire ants seriously and act accordingly, and he's keen to learn as much as he can about the invasive species. Well, we're certainly treating it seriously, and, um, and uh, we certainly don't want it getting out of, out of hand um, and doing everything we can uh, to, to ensure it doesn't spread. So what does that involve for a business like yours? You're, um, you know, you're, you're close, you're sort of right on the edge of the zone. Yeah. Um, you know, well, what kind of, in reality, what kind of changes or potential changes does this mean to you? Uh, well, we're just following the DPI's recommendations on, on what to do. And, uh, and as I said, we'll do everything we have to do to, to make sure that uh, we you know, stick to the rules. But, yeah, um, it'd be, it'll mean some spraying, possibly. Um, and uh, we're yeah, aware of what they look like and, and uh, all that sort of thing, so I don't know. Were you surprised by the size of them and the, the amount of damage that such a tiny little pest can do? <laughs> uh, well, I, I believe there's only just one nest found at this stage, so uh, let's hope that's all there is and it's under control. Um, yeah, but of course, yeah, it's a, it's a worry if it gets out. And Robert, have you seen or heard of the damage it's done in Queensland? And like, is that sort of like you know a real mm. live possibility, I guess, of taking this immensely seriously? Um, if you go online, you can see a lot of the information about it. Uh, that's all I've done. So um, yeah, uh, it's certainly a problem overseas, and uh, we don't want that to happen here. What does it mean for the greater sort of soil mulch um, businesses, um, turf, the mm. uh, agriculture here around the Wardell Ballina area? It could be uh, devastating to, to the area if it gets out of hand. Um, so yeah, we'll just have to see how it goes, I suppose. Robert McDonald, who operates a turf farm in the Wardell area, talking about fire ant there. It's 28 minutes to one here. 
On the country hour, it's, uh, we'll have some weather details shortly. There's some talk about uh, that uh, tropical, ex-tropical cyclone system bringing quite a bit of rain into northern New South Wales. It's um, by no means 100% certain, but uh, we'll be talking about the possibility shortly with the Bureau. But before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam's story. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, they've managed to track down the uh, one of the uh, cyber criminals behind the attack on the uh, Medibank uh, system. Uh, Alexander Ermakov has been named of one of the people responsible. Uh, pretty bit hard to get him extradited from Russia. <laughs> so since uh, we don't have any extradition, yeah, treaty, they've imposed yeah. Uh, sanctions on him, which means he can't come here or do any business in Australia, which I'm sure has crushed him. But uh, <laughs> well, at least we know. Unless he does it through and the dark web, walking. of course. What's that? Unless he does it through the dark web, of course. Jeez, you know what? I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think about that one, nah, eh? Hey, <laughs> hey. Uh, there is a photo of him uh, in the mainstream media. He's good looking, is look. he? He's a young, yeah, pretty, yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't suspect him. First, <laughs> immediately. Doesn't, doesn't look like a criminal. No. Uh, criminal. <laughs> no, that's right. <clears throat> uh, a lot of chit-chat about the Stage 3 tax cuts, uh, obviously with the Prime Minister hinting that there will be changes, uh, probably with more people on the lower end of the scale getting more money as opposed to the people on the higher end of the scale. Uh, that's set off all sorts of what-about-me's and uh, also warning from economists just, just about uh, whatever you do, make sure it doesn't... Uh, uh, stoke the inflation beast, basically. Well, and and that's the thing is that if they do give more of a tax cut to people who have more disposable, mm. well, they end up having to have that as disposable income. They're going to spend it exactly. Whereas, yeah. whereas people that in the higher range don't necessarily spend, spend it, it as a as a you know um, mm. as a windfall, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, which we could all do with good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's been another round of uh, joint American and British strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. They uh, targeted eight sites. Australia again providing uh, logistics support uh, back at HQ. Uh, the action has been tried, uh, obviously, to try and stop the uh, Houthis uh, attacking uh, those uh, commercial shipping routes in the Red Sea. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the preparations continue in large parts of Queensland as that uh, cyclone approaches with it gathering strength. Uh, could make landfall, um, to, uh, I think, uh, late, uh, late tonight or tomorrow. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned yesterday, that's going to have an effect uh, in the north here. So... I'll leave you to that one. Certainly, yes. Looking, yeah. looking more and more likely. Isn't more likely. It? Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, rents at the moment. Hobart has become well, always has been, but at uh, Hobart is the cheapest capital city to rent in now at uh, five hundred and thirty-five dollars a week on average. Uh, that's with uh, rents hitting an all-time high. The national average is six hundred dollars a week. Uh, city the most expensive at seven hundred and forty-five dollars a week, followed by Canberra at six fifty-one. Then Perth at six hundred and thirty. So I'd imagine in the regions probably. Uh, well, I mean, certainly the story. rents have been going at places yeah. like Orange and Wagga. Yeah, Orange really, certainly, yeah, absolutely going yeah. going up. You know, no question about that at all. And in the recent last few years or so, particularly, mm. yeah, definitely. There's fewer and fewer people able to afford to buy. It's, mm, that's right. Uh, rent well, your only option. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. All right. Thanks for that. We'll be listening at one o'clock. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, you'd forgotten. Oh. No, uh, yeah. 24 minutes. You You'll be <laughs> you knew you had something to do today. It's uh, 24 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. 
You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, let's get the latest information on the weather and Juan Park joins us from the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Marco. So first of all, what, what's, what are the main features uh, now and for the next couple of days? Uh, yes, uh, we are seeing some scattered light showers along the coast and the eastern ranges, but hot and dry and sunny conditions in the west. And we may see increasing heat in the north and west over the uh, next couple of days due to the development of a warm northerly air stream. So on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, the maximum temperatures in the north and west may see uh, reach high 30s to low 40s in many parts. Uh, and so with that, we have a heat wave warnings um, over central tables and the northwest slopes and plains, central western and the low western and upper western districts. Then um, also uh, on Wednesday, we may see some isolated high-based showers or thunderstorms in the far south uh, later Wednesday as a trough enters the states far south and west uh, later. Uh, but don't expect much rainfall out of that, uh, more likely cloudy than actually rainfall. Uh, then as this uh, trough system moves a bit further north, we may see some uh, light showers or high-based storms uh, extending to the southern half of the state uh, um, on Thursday. Then on Friday, we expect uh, a cooler changes uh, over the southern half uh, as a cold front uh, crosses the southern half of the state. And we, with, the, uh, with that, we expect cooler southerly changes across the south, and also the rainfall system will be shifting to the north, and then uh, by the time, uh, by Saturday, uh, these cooler changes will be heading to the state's northeast quarter, where it will be interacting with the moist air masses. That means uh, we may see widespread moderate falls in the state's northeast quarter, and there may be some uh, uh, isolated uh, heavier totals uh, with the thunderstorms that may bring, uh, potentially bring localised heavy falls. So this is from the moisture that's coming down from Queensland and this is sort of early next week? Uh, well, into the uh, next week, actually, it, uh, it's still uncertain, but it may become interesting. because It may, even, it may have been more than that. I, I was thinking <laughs> yeah. in terms of some of those sites are saying quite a lot of heavy rain, like hundreds of millimetres, potentially. Yes, it actually depends on what this uh, tropical low does over Queensland side. And uh, by the way, this tropical low, currently named as O5U, is over coral seas and uh, expected to make uh, landfall uh, over uh, somewhere about a Townsville area, maybe. Um, so sometime uh, tomorrow, uh, sorry, not tomorrow, but uh, uh, maybe on Thursday. Yes, and with that, there is a, a, tro- a tropical cyclone watch between St. Lawrence and the uh, Cairns area uh, starting from uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, but uh, depending on how this uh, tropical cyclone uh, tracks, uh, well, by the time it, it will be uh, coming south, uh, it will be weak, uh, transitioning to a tropical depression and maybe heading to the southern Queensland. And there's some model indications that it may head to the uh, states, uh, New South Wales' north or northeast. And if in that scenario, we may see bucketful rainfall and maybe uh, some uh, riverine flooding as well. But uh, I would say at this moment, the chance is 50-50% because uh, there's another 
50% chance that this tropical depression might be staying over Queensland side than us. But on the other hand, there is also a risk of uh, you know, this system coming into our side. If that happens, it will be uh, maybe early next week, but this is still uh, highly uncertain, so watch this space. Okay, well, that's right. Well, there are quite a few uh, computer models that are uh, looking at this quite closely. Juan, uh, uh, thanks for that. My pleasure. It's 20 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country. I will stay with that story because international weather sites, as uh, we're talking about there, some of them are warning that heavy rain from that tropical cyclone heading to Townsville. When it becomes an ex-tropical cyclone, that uh, rainfall could head south and lash northern New South Wales and particularly the northern rivers area. Dennis Luke is an independent severe weather forecaster. Uh, he's been looking at that. Uh, he's got a warning there that he's putting out uh, for next week for that area. But he's also forecasting some interesting changes to the El Nino. He says it's set to weaken in April and May. And he's also forecasting we'll probably have uh, quite a cool and wet winter as well. Even though most meteorological agencies around the world are still spruiking El Nino, there's got to be an understanding, as I've spoken to you before, about the depth of it. And as I said, uh, we're looking at a low to moderate. Now, it is indicative of what the sea surface temperatures are doing, not just around the continent. Uh, They're also spruiking about the Indian Ocean Dipole and how far across the equator, uh, the temperatures above average temperatures at the moment and the southern oscillating index. And we've all experienced an occasional day here or a couple of days here and there of uh, well above uh, average temperatures. And then all of a sudden we have to go and put the long pants back on. To the strength of what they were spruiking in October that we're all going to die under 40 to 50 degree temperatures every day, Um, you can see that they've got that well and truly wrong. So I think a lot of people are sort of, well, we'll wait and see. Um, My take on it is that it will continue doing what it's doing. Now, you're also seeing on the the international uh, computer models and international charts and forecasting, they're saying it could peter out entirely by May, El Nino. Uh, Yes, I'm expecting that to happen because uh, Which is against what some of the forecasters are saying elsewhere. They're saying that they could continue (laughs) on beyond that quite possibly. No, I don't believe so. And there is a transition period. It'll probably be a very short transition period because normally when we go from El Nino to a La Nina, we have a neutral. Uh, But even those computer models that I sent you this morning are showing that the transition period is just like, you know, a snap of the fingers type of thing. So we'll probably have a similar summer than we've had in the last two or three years where it's been quite um, mild to warm uh, depending on where you are in the country and New South Wales especially. I'm seeing uh, colder weather, wetter weather. And that's, um, for, that's, for this, that's for this winter? That's for not only just winter but spring as well yeah. and into summer. So, um, so cooler and uh, more rain is on the cards? Colder. Yep. I'd go, I'd go colder. So um, if, if we're talking about uh, the five levels of El Nino, we've got the five levels of La Nina. So I'm talking probably moderate to strong, similar to 2022 when we had a lot of uh, those floods where I saw that 40-foot container uh, floating down the main street of Orange. So 
they're the type of conditions that we're going to be getting back to if people are complaining about uh, potholes and stuff like that, not ac- not being able to access certain roads. Uh, and widespread flooding and, and, and flooding yeah. that sits there for quite some time too. They're, they're going to have to start because I know... Uh, there's a couple of places in New South Wales that have actually started looking at um, working on dealing with uh, better issues like this with councils uh, and state government and federal government funding uh, because it's just not good enough that we, we get to a point where you know how much is too much and um, if they can't afford it, well, why aren't they getting money from the state and federal government for fixing roads and, and doing better organisation with um, sandbagging things like that and, and building levees if they're if they're spooking climate change well they should be uh, in doing things indicative to climate change and that means that they need to be protecting uh, communities regardless of where they are even if there's you know 57 people in one community town and the Thirty thousand in another one, you know, they spend money on thirty thousand, but they don't worry about the ones that's got fifty-seven. So they're the sort of things that um, councils and communities, uh, community leaders, um, you know, even rotaries and uh, the lines clubs and all that sort of stuff, they should be getting behind communities, which they normally do. But to take it uh, further, because these people know how to deal with these sorts of things, so. We should be getting together. Now, we talked about the moderate, um, low to moderate El Nino this year. Is that why we saw so much rain, that the rain bands were able to break through that? Yes, very much so. It's it's just indicative of of how the lower the, the threat level, uh, the higher the opportunity is for other things to come into play. And that's what's happened. And uh, you don't know where it's going to happen until probably about a week or so before the latter part of this week and early next week, the effects of the cyclone that's about to hit um, coastal uh, Queensland will come in through the interior, down through um, Brisbane and the northern the northern rivers uh, up around. Um, oh, so you're predicting it'll come down that low through there? Yeah, yep. it'll it'll come down that low through mm. there. So I'll be putting that up tonight on my social media. So and risk of, to, uh, risk of a lot of rain and flooding, potentially? Uh, uh, heaps of it. Because mm. it's going to be an ex-tropical system, uh, it's a bit like when Cyclone Yasi came through uh, Queensland and New South Wales back in 2011. That just dumped hundreds of millimetres, not just in Queensland, but in those northern river parts of New South Wales. Northern rivers in New South Wales have copped it. They might cop it again. Mm. Yes, not might, they will. Mm. So, um, you know, these computer models, when they're all saying the same thing, and I've got seven of them. And this is in the next seven days, is it? Yeah, the latter part of... Because the cyclones, uh, I'm expecting the cyclone to hit um, around Townsville sometime on Thursday. So Australia Day for most of that part of uh, Australia inland... Uh, around Emerald, Charlieville, uh, Longreach, uh, they'll be affected and then it'll come down to Brisbane, uh, Toowoomba and then into the Northern Rivers area um, probably about Monday or Tuesday next Next week. week. But the only other thing that might happen 
is that um, if the sea surface temperatures uh, change and become colder, which they're showing uh, off the coast of Queensland, the wind shear, if the cyclone catches the wind shear or the colder waters, uh, the wind shear will just rip the guts out of the cyclone and it won't turn up. You know, the other option is it'll head northwest uh, towards uh, Cairns. So I'm... All the computer models have started to marry up now. Uh, they have done for the last 26, 24 hours. And uh, they're all showing the same thing around Townsville. We'll just wait and see what eventuates. We'll probably know by Wednesday um, what's going to happen. But as for New South Wales, um, if this cyclone continues, it'll come down through the interior of Queensland and into the northern rivers uh, for earlier next week. As Dennis Lucas, an independent severe weather forecaster, of course, the Bureau, we heard from them earlier, so they're saying, you know, that's still a possibility, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it's only a 50-50 chance, was what the uh, Bureau is saying, but uh, Dennis Luke uh, was a bit more uh, uh, bit, bit more likely that it is going to happen, So, but the Bureau is saying 50-50 chance of uh, quite a lot of rainfall on Monday or Tuesday. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, 11 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. For the third year in a row, Greenthorpe farmers Rob and Mandy Taylor have been named state champions in the Dryland Week competition run by Ag Shows Australia. The competition assesses the yield potential along with factors like weed, disease and crop uniformity. Farming between Young, Grenfell and Cowra, Mr Taylor told Emily Doak the winning wheat crop was expected to yield 7.6 tonnes per hectare. It was a cracking crop, actually. A nice bit of red soil on a northerly aspect that was, was well insulated from the frost. We got a bit of late frost damage in October, which knocked around some of our lower-lying country on the creek. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a crop that looked good all year and had certainly performed well in the end, yeah. And so how did the growing season for that particular crop pan out for you and what were the challenges you had to deal with? A magnificent autumn here, as most of southern New South Wales experienced in 2023, like perfect sowing conditions. We've got a great autumn break. Uh, so the crop was set up with a full moisture profile, um, which is just what we like to see as coppers. July, August, September, though, did dry off considerably, so it did have a bit of a tight pinch in spring. Um, and then we had, luckily enough, to jag a good rain late spring just to finish the crop off. Otherwise, without that, we would have been in trouble. But it was really that concern, uh, you know, subsoil moisture that we grew the crop on. And you're a family farming operation. Um, you use things like controlled traffic systems and variable rate fertiliser applications. I suppose looking at this year's crop, we've seen, you know, rising uh, input costs in on everything from fertiliser to fuel. How does that play out in terms of your management of a crop through the growing season? When we start a season with a full profile of moisture, though, it gives gives me a lot of confidence to, to probably go a bit harder than what we normally would. So, And that's normally what I do. I, I don't skimp on inputs and probably, um, you know, higher for, target higher production levels if I've got moisture to warrant that, which we probably did to start the season with last year. Um, but, yes, we're pretty... Um, most of our fertiliser in terms of urea goes on in a variable rate fashion, so the crop gets what it needs where it needs it. Um, I think that helps. But, yeah, very conscious of input costs... They, they're creeping up all the time, so it, it's um, an expensive game these days, so you've got to make sure you spend your money wisely. And a third-time winner of the top prize in this week competition, what was it like to uh, claim the honour again? 
Oh, look, to be honest, I'm a bit embarrassed by the whole ordeal. It, um, it's not our game to, to win prizes. We're just going to support the local show competition more than anything. And it's a couple of um, um, enthusiastic gentlemen that run that our local grateful competition. Um, and I only just won that narrowly. I've got to say, I have done every year for the last three years by only a point or two. So not much in it. There's plenty of good farmers out there, and I feel uh, a little bit embarrassed, actually. I'm sure there's better farmers and better crops out there than what I'm... What I have achieved, maybe they haven't entered competitions for whatever reasons, I don't know. But um, anyway, very, very proud of our achievement nonetheless. And uh, just quickly, how are things panning out for the season ahead? Bit of summer rainfall keeping you busy at the moment? Yeah, it certainly is. The um, Bureau have got it completely wrong, again, with their hot, dry El Nino forecast. We've had um, in excess of 150 millimetres for January so far, so... The weeds are going gangbusters and the boom sprays are busy keeping on top of um, all trying to keep our fallows clean. Um, but you mentioned we are mixed farmers, which we are, so we've got some good loosened pastures around us and they've rebounded beautifully. So there's plenty of feed and we're actually cutting loosened hay as we speak. And it's hopefully contributing to the subsoil moisture and setting us up for another crop this year. Rob Taylor from Greenthorpe, who's the overall winner of the state's dry land wheat competition. First up to Wodonga Cattle. Good afternoon. Feedlots took the lead in determining prices for a larger yarding at Wodonga of 2200. The standout feature of the sale was the dominant influence of feedlots, outpricing processes across various categories of steers and heifers. The demand for feeder steers surged ahead 30 cents reaching a peak at 3.41 and averaging 2.94 for medium weights. Feeder heifers of lighter weights saw big demand, prompting bidding jewels that raised prices by 30 cents. The majority of these heifers were sold at 2.65 to 3.30. Domestic buyers had to look toward grass finish heifers and had to settle on prices ranging from 2.62 to 2.88. Vealer numbers increased and the lead of the veal sold 10 to 30 cents dearer depending on the buyer. Prices range from 275 to 330 for the better end. In the export market, prices remain stable to slightly softer, ranging from 275 to 306. The cow sale, not all processes were active, but despite this, heavy cows maintained their prices, selling from 260 to 278. The middle run Alina cows sold at 210 to 255, and good bulls were Price between 220 and 244. Leanne Ducks, MLA. Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers fell this summer with agents yarding 27,550 head. There was 20,000 lambs. Panned and quality continues to be similar to that of previous sales with good numbers of well-finished trade and heavyweight lambs penned along with the planar and secondary types. The usual bars are present competing along with restockers in an easier market. Young and lightweight lambs to restockers sold from $74 to $145 a head. Trade weight old lambs, 18 to 24 kilo, were back $6 a head to range in price from $128 to $192 a head. Heavyweight lambs were also slightly easier, ranging from $194 to $206. Extra heavyweight lambs were most firm to four dollars easier selling from 213 to a top of 254 carcass prices average 750 to 800 cents a kilo the best of the heavy hoggets reached 148 dollars a head and on the balance of the lambs and seven and a half thousand head of mutton are still to be sold this has been crystal ridley at forbes from la carcore cattle 
Numbers increased by 200 for a total yarding of 2,744 of fair to good quality cattle. A large percentage was made up of medium weight feeder steers, along with some good runs of grown cattle, and there were 390 cows. All the usual buyers were operating, selling to a dear trend. Trade yielding steers lifted 10, 264 to 313, and heifers to process also dearer, 250 to 328. Medium weight heavy feeder steers, 15 better, 248 to 368. Heifers to feed also dearer, 242 to 316. There was a limited supply of weaners to suit restockers, with the steers topping at 376. There was not enough heifers to quote. Heavy grown cattle were firm and a few cents dearer, with steers 238 to 314, heifers 224 to 296. Two score cows were considerably, considerably dearer, 190 to 218. Heavy prime cows still strong, 225 to 275. Bulls sold to 236. This has been Angus Williams for MLA at CTLX. Gunner cattle. Good afternoon. Strong demand from northern feedlotters and processors were the driving force behind a strong market where numbers lifted to 2,550 head. Not many lightweight cattle in a mostly good quality penning. All the regular buyers were in attendance and competing strongly. Restocker and feeder categories sold a dear trends for the most part, only really quality related price change in some cases. Lightweight steers to restockers reached 407 cents a kilo. Medium weight yielding steers 280 to 370. Heavyweight feeders 341 to 370 cents with little breed related price variation. They were up to 12 cents dearer, a slightly dearer trend for the medium and heavyweight yielding heifers to feed, ranging from 290 to 337. Heavy trade yieldings were a little cheaper with steers to 369, heifers to 330 cents. Heavy grown steers to process were a shade dearer, 300 to 320 cents. Heavy cows were up to 13 cents dearer, three and four scores selling from 242 to 266 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Canada. Inverell cattle. Increased demand at Inverell for all categories. Competition from regular feeders and backgrounders bolstered by processors. Purchasing trade cattle numbers lifted by 436. With, an, with a decrease in quality through the offering. Light steers 200 to 280 kilos live weight to background. Featured substantial rises of 26 cents. Light and medium feeder steers to similar trends up 35 cents. Selling to 362. Similar weight heifers considerably dearer backgrounders. 312 to 330, feed is 22 cents dearer, 312 to 334, trade heifers average 304 up 10. Heavy cows selling to dearer trends 249 to 268, medium draft firm to make 240, heavy wools dearer to sell to 265 cents a kilo. And finally scone cattle. Scone agents yarded 932 good quality cattle, highlighted by some handy runs of heavy Angus steers, suitable to the processors and feedlotters alike. Not all the regular buyers in attendance, which failed to dampen the enthusiasm for those present. Overall market trend dearer. Light restocker steer weaners, 288 to 452, 50 cents better off. Medium weights, 364 to 404, over 330 kilos, 334 to 378. Light restocker heifer weaners, 312 to 386, improving by 20 to 40 cents, over 330 kilos, 300 to 336. Medium weight yielding steers made to 400, 33 dearer, over 400 kilo feeders to 338. Heavy prime bullocks and heifers to the export is much improved, 278 to 304. Light two score cows, 200 to 236. Heavy three and four scores dearer by five to eight cents, 254 to 280. And the best heavy bull made 250 cents. Angus Barlow at Scone. You've been listening to the Country Hour. We're heading up to news time.